Well, we're going to be we're going to be back in Ephesians chapter one this morning as we return to our study. As we return to our study in Ephesians, if you could turn to Ephesians one, uh, we're going to particularly this morning be in verses eighteen and nineteen. But I will read. I will read twenty three. We started verses 15 to 23, and I titled my sermon last time, What Do You Pray For? What do you pray for? And this is part two of that, of that sermon, of those sermons. Let me read, starting in verse 15. I want, to, I want you to know that Paul is basically praying through verses 3 through 14 as he prays in verses 15 through 23. Listen to the Word of God. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning. We praise your holy name. Father, may your word go forth this morning. May it do its good work in the lives and hearts of those who hear. Father, I pray and ask for your Holy Spirit to move this morning, that it may that we may understand your word. Father, that you may apply it in the lives of those who hear. We thank you and praise you again in Christ's name. Amen. Well, during this past week, Tim Challies posted an article by a man named Stephen McAlpine titled, The BBC, 100 Genders, 92 League Teams. In this article, McAlpine reminisced about the days of old when he would listen to the BBC to hear the English Football League results. His routine was to listen to the scores in hopes that his football team had won. He could tell that his favorite team had won before the score was revealed by the inflection of the announcer's voice. Now, McAlpine was remembering a much simpler time when we could trust the news to be tr- trustworthy. And, a lot, and, and for a lack of a better way to put it, we could trust the news to be newsworthy. In other words, they stuck to reporting things that mattered, like football scores. Now, beloved, I think you know, if you're paying attention, that those simple times are long gone. 
The BBC, which was once a venerable old news organization, just announced that there are 100 genders, which is eight more, according to McAlpine, than the total number of football teams in the English Football League. According to McAlpine, yes, we've reached peak ridiculous. As an article in the Times reports, the BBC has produced a series of nine films for schools that tell teachers who work with nine to 12-year-old children that there are a hundred genders. In one question and answer session, a young boy asks, what are the different gender identities? He is then praised by the teacher for asking a really, really exciting question. Let that sink in for a second. The film cuts to the te- this teacher named Kate Daniels, who explains to two other young children, we know that we have got male and female, but there are over 100, if not more, gender identities now. Beloved, we are living in a woke paradise. In case you missed it, recognizing a myriad of genders has become fashionable in our day and age. We have moved on from the simplicity of two genders, which is incredibly old-fashioned thinking and even dangerous thinking to some. We've moved on well past that. Facebook, just a few months ago, came out with 71 different genders, which makes you wonder how they're so far behind the BBC. And you thought there were only two, right? McAlpine's main concern in his article is for the effect of the fallout the fallout will have on many people. He states, I'm tempted to just get out the popcorn and sit and watch the train wreck, but it's much too sad for that. The bodies, whatever gender they deem themselves to be, will start to wash up on the cultural shores at some point. I just hope there are enough people willing to care for these broken and confused souls. Brethren, we live in a broken world where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And if history and the Bible is any indication, are any any indication, things will proceed from bad to worse. Just this past week, we heard of the tragic news of a young pastor in California who took his own life. If you looked at any of the articles, you realize that he left a beautiful family behind, a wife and two children. From the outside looking in, he had a great life. He was a pastor in a megachurch with a beautiful family. You can't get more American evangelistic or evangelical, that is, than that. Sadly, he was an advocate for those who struggle with depression and suicidal tendencies. Earlier on the same day that he killed himself, he sent out several tweets pleading for people with thoughts of suicide to reach out for help. Sadly... Tragically, it turns out he was the one who needed the help. Now, my prayer, beloved, is that this man is in heaven. Suicide is not the unpardonable sin. I hope that he truly knows our Lord Jesus as his Lord and Savior. That's not my focus here. I want you to consider the profound lack of true hope in our world. Beloved, As our culture continues to come apart at the seams, we will encounter more and more people who are profoundly broken. They may look normal on the outside. They may look just like you and I. 
but they will have no reason for hope. Just this past week, I visited Miss Helene in her home to pray with her and encourage her. She is our oldest church member at 90 plus years old. She is, and she's struggling with some health issues, as most of you know. As we visited, I was struck by one thing. I was struck by her profound hope. Her hope is supernatural in nature. Even as she struggles with her sickness, her thoughts were on the welfare of others. She even shared how she was able to share the gospel with some of the medical personnel. This reminds me of the words of the aging saint, John Newton, who said this, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Beloved, amid a society which is failing and losing hope by the moment, how can a 91-year-old have any hope at all? I believe it's because Miss Helene has her hope fixed on a future that cannot be changed. A future that Jesus has promised to those who love Him. Her hope is unblemished because it has been promised by one who cannot lie. Now, over the past few months, we have been studying Ephesians chapter 1. In this chapter, Paul has shown the church at Ephesus that God has blessed all believers with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And in these verses, Paul has displayed the weight of the glory of God the Father in electing believers before the foundation of the world and predestining them to adoption as sons. Jared Wilson describes these truths by asking, Why has God blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Why has He chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him? Why has He predestined us as or for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to His will? He says this, the answer is in Ephesians 1.6. He did it for the praise of His glorious grace. Without a doubt, beloved, God gets all the glory for saving His people. Again, according to Jared Wilson, he says this, The glory of God is best heard in the proclaimed gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul does just that by displaying the glory of Christ and redeeming through His blood His people for the forgiveness of their, of their sins, of their trespasses. You see, Paul, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. He is not ashamed of a bloody Savior. He's not ashamed of the cross. He writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Beloved, we see throughout this passage in Ephesians 1 how God the Father is making much of the work of Christ. He's making much of Christ. And as if our salvation in Christ is not enough, He has made known to us the mystery of His will, which was hidden in ages past. So not only has God saved us, but He has granted us insight and wisdom, which which has been granted to us in the Holy Spirit. Beloved, He did all these things, He did all these things for you when you heard and believed the gospel of His salvation. At salvation, you were also sealed in the Holy Spirit when you believed the message of the cross. Therefore, 
because you have been sealed in the Holy Spirit, because you believe, because you've been sealed, you can't, you've been given security in Christ. And nothing, nothing can snatch you from His hand. Beloved, that's true hope. That's true hope. When you were saved, God sent His Holy Spirit to dwell in you as a down payment for your full redemption in the future. Beloved, that's a promise that cannot be taken away. As a result of these truths, in verse 15, Paul breaks out into prayer for the saints at Ephesus. Now, last time we learned that we should model our prayer for the saints after Paul's prayer. We should model our own prayer for the saints after Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 1. You see, his prayer is born out of the truths of what God has done for believers in Christ Jesus. Did you get that? In other words, he's praying through the truths that he taught in verses 3 through 14. That's what drives his, his prayer in 15 through 23. We can't miss that. We shouldn't miss that. This is where we get our title, sermon title, What Do You Pray For? The question is, what do you pray for? Do you pray for material things? A new car, a new house, more money, comfort? Or maybe you pray out of anxiety. Are you constantly worried about what's going to happen in the future? I know many of us follow politics. And as Christians, while we should acknowledge the necessity of politics in a fallen world, we must also recognize that politics are a result of our fallenness. There's no hope in them. There's no true hope in them. In other words, politics is, is part of being a citizen in this fallen world as we deliberate the best ways for living with one another in our world. But beloved, you are a Christian. As a Christian, you are a citizen of heaven. And that should trump everything. That should trump everything. That consideration must outweigh every difficulty and struggle that we have here on earth. Every concern for your future. Every concern for politics and what's going on in this world should be trumped by your the fact that you are a citizen in heaven. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And then he says this, Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. End quote. Brethren, the Apostle Paul understood this principle. Outside of Jesus himself, Paul may have been the most heavenly-minded person who ever lived. So his prayer here in Ephesians is, gospel-focused. He begins by thanking God for saving the Ephesians. And he stands amazed at what Christ is doing in the, through the, in the world through the church. In his prayer, Paul specifically is thankful for their faith in Christ Jesus. He's also thankful for their faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is a direct result of the faith that they have. Ultimately, the gist of Paul's prayer is that the Ephesians would live according to the insight and wisdom that they've been given in Christ. So let's take a look at the next part of Paul's prayer in verses 18 through 19. 
In these verses, Paul prays that the world or that the church at Ephesus would grasp three astounding realities which should also characterize your prayer for the saints here at GBC, for the saints here at Grace Bible Church Gainesville. You should pray with Paul that the brethren would first first reality pray pray always that they would recognize the unblemished hope of his calling that we would recognize the unblemished hope of his calling. Look at the text. Look at verse 18. Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's the NAS. The ESV translates this verse, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The, The word translated enlightened literally means to give light or to illumine. The idea is making known transcendent matters. The eyes of your heart refers to the enlightenment of thought and understanding at the level of your feeling and emotions. This enlightenment changes your will and affects your thoughts and understanding. In other words, when the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, you you will have been awakened to a whole new world. John MacArthur puts it this way. When the Holy Spirit works in the believer's mind, he enriches it to understand divine truth that is deep and profound and then relates that truth to life, including those aspects of life that involve our emotions, end quote. Beloved, when God enlightens the eyes of your heart, He enriches your mind and your heart to understand spiritual things. He changes your will so that you desire to follow Him. He changes your emotions so that it brings you joy to obey Him. You know, I was thinking as I was preparing this that there are some people in my family whom I've shared the gospel with many times over many years. They don't understand it. I'm speaking of not only my immediate family, but my extended family. At times I've become frustrated because they don't listen. But I have to understand that God has not opened the eyes of their heart. In His sovereignty, He has not enlightened them to see and understand the things of God. They are blinded by the by the by Satan and love for this world. Last This past week, we heard some testimonies at our membership social. A common theme was the profound change from desiring our sin to desiring the things of God. Many of you came from profound situations of worldliness, and you went from loving the world to loving Christ. Back to this phrase in Ephesians, Frank, frankly, it's a little bit of an awkward phrase. But I believe that there's a reason for the awkwardness. The phrase is awkward because the tense of the participle enlightened is the the perfect tense. Now, I think the the perfect tense is incredible because of the truth it can portray, but it can be hard to translate into, into the meaning into English without further explanation. Now, please excuse me for this grammar lesson. But you need to understand that the perfect tense, you need to understand the perfect tense to understand what Paul is saying here. And you need to understand that the perfect tense refers to something that has happened at a point in the past. So something that's happened in the past, which has implications up to the time of the speaking or writing, and perhaps beyond. So this this phrase in the, in the New English Translation Bible has been translated since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. 
Now, I think that this is a better translation to convey Paul's point. What Paul is saying, and I hope you notice, is that something has happened in the past, and that because of it's, because it's in the perfect tense, it's something that has happened in the past, it's already occurred, and it has implications to the future, or to the time of writing. So, what Paul is saying is that their eyes have been enlightened, and they continue to be enlightened up until that point, and will continue into the future. In other words, something has happened to you in the past that has enlightened your eyes to the truth of God's Word. Now, Paul has already said what that is in verse 13. They heard the message of truth and they believed it. They had the Holy Spirit come into their heart. And in doing so, their eyes have been enlightened. This is what I wanted to hear from the testimonies I heard this past week. Has God truly enlightened the eyes of your heart? Has He done a work in your heart to change you? The Net Bible actually makes this a parenthetical thought for Paul. In other words, it's, it's a thought that seems to be thrown in the middle of his flow of thought. He seems to be exclaiming in the middle of this prayer that that. He needs, seems to be explaining God's work and bringing to the, the light to, you, to them, and then that, that is the only reason that they understand spiritual things. Did you get that? He's speaking of God's work and bringing light, which is the only reason that they can even understand any of this. They, the Net Bible gives an insightful note, insightful comment in their notes. It says this, it seems that the author is saying, that'd be Paul, I know that you are saved, that you have had the blinders of the devil removed, but because of this, I can now pray that you will fully understand and see the light of God's glorious revelation. He's exclaiming, the eyes of their heart have been enlightened. They've been open to see spiritual things and understand. And if you're a believer here today, you understand that. Howard Horner says it this way, the commentator on Ephesians, he says it this way, It is best to think that since the Ephesian believers were chosen, redeemed, and sealed, they were enlightened the moment they heard and believed the gospel. Brethren, if you're sitting here today, if you're sitting here today and you do not recognize that God has truly enlightened the eyes of your heart, then you may not be a Christian. It's not for me to discern your heart, but I want you to be aware of what happens when you become a Christian. I don't want you to misunderstand me. It's not a ne not necessarily a flash of light. Many times it happens over an extended period of time. But it is, when you turn to Christ, it is a profound change of direction. I've been blessed to see the Spirit of God move amongst the people, saving several. Beloved, when God saves us, there is a profound transformation. My prayer is that we would see the Spirit of God move here in this church and that we would see many come to know the Lord so that many would have the eyes of their heart enlightened. Paul goes on to say, look at the text. He goes on to say, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. Beloved, put simply, we have no hope in this world outside of Christ. 
We have none, no hope outside of Christ. You may think that's harsh. It's true. The word translated hope has the idea of expectation or confidence. The Old Testament idea of hope was directed toward the eternal God who would protect and deliver. If not now, then certainly in the future. The New Testament's concept of hope builds off of this Old Testament concept. The the New Testament writers speak of of an expectation, a trust in God as we patiently wait on Him to work out His plan of redemption. See, I think that Paul here is talking about a subjective hope that all believers can have in Christ. But this subjective hope, this subjective hope has to be built on an objective hope which finds its basis in the Word of God. You can't feel like you have hope if you don't have true hope that's found in the Word of God. Specifically, the hope Paul exclaims here explains is the objective hope that he has given us in verses 3 through 14. The word translated calling is closely linked to God's election and predestination of believers. This word speaks of the effectual call of God. Again, we see the connection here to verses 3 through 14. In other words, this word refers to the call of God to salvation. We see the same idea in Romans 8, 8, 8.28, where Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. It's an effectual calling. It's a calling that brings hope. And we can have hope because according to Romans 8.29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Beloved, it is God's great plan that every believer would be conformed to the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This and only this is our hope. And this hope will be fully realized as God brings His eternal plan to fruition. Howard Howard Honer puts it this way, Because believers are called by God into His family, they have hope. Their hope is an absolute certainty. This hope was produced by the call of God on their lives. There's a clear call of God. There's a clear call of God that they can see and feel. It's a subjective Feeling, that is, but it comes from an objective understanding of what God is doing in their lives. Beloved, when we study the world today, when we look at the world today, we are confronted with seemingly insurmountable problems. Because of these problems, the world is consumed with fears for their future. They ponder things like global warming, the melting of the polar ice cap, Asteroids hitting the earth, the sun burning out, overpopulation, our world energy supply. Just yesterday, Iran was accused of an attack on Saudi Saudi Arabia oil facilities. The world is consumed by these things. I'm constantly amazed to see our culture clamor about such worldwide problems when we live in a time of unprecedented prosperity. Yet even with our prosperity... The world can't solve its problems. It can't even solve much more basic issues like marriage and children, crippling debt, drug and alcohol abuse, racial strife. Who should govern us, Democrats or Republicans? 
whether or not we should kill our babies, whether or not two men or two women should marry. We can't even solve those problems as the world. Beloved, the problems of this world can overcome us if we let them. We will have no hope if our only hope is in this world. We will have no hope if our only hope is in the world, our world leaders to solve its own problems or solve the problems. This is true no matter who you voted for or your party affiliation. It doesn't matter. But that's where the hope of His calling brings great comfort to the believer. It's not that we are oblivious to the world's problems, but that we, are, that we see them considering a much greater hope. God's plan of redemption has been revealed to us. Therefore, we have been given wisdom and insight. We need to live in this world. We've been given a great hope. You have been given a great hope. Beloved, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then you have hope. No matter what you're facing, sickness, tragedy, family difficulties, children, spouse, work struggles, financial struggles, marriage difficulties. I think I've said that already, family difficulties. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have hope. Beloved, it is my prayer that you find hope in Christ alone. As you face trials and difficulties, if you, as you face an uncertain world, that you would look to Christ and that your hope in Christ would be unblemished by the stain of the world. Beloved, you should pray that the brethren would always recognize the unblemished hope of His calling. Secondly, the second astounding reality that we should pray for is that they would realize the unfailing riches of his inheritance. Look at the text with me. It says, Paul says, that you would know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The word translated riches here has the idea of abundance and wealth. Now, we must answer the question of whose inheritance this is, ours or Jesus's. Commentators are actually split on this question. Good men go both ways. Having said that, I must follow the grammar here, the grammar of the sentence which I believe fits, fits with the idea of redemption. Therefore, I believe this phrase speaks of Christ's inheritance, His inheritance. The plain sense of the text is that we're speaking of the inheritance of Christ. Again, this fits, fits nicely, that is, with the idea of redemption. Back in verse 11, Paul spoke of an inheritance. Now, I don't have time to unpack it here, but you can go back and listen if you disagree. But I believe Paul spoke there of Christ's inheritance. And I believe that the, the present passage clearly proves this. Look at the text. Paul speaks of his inheritance in the saints. In other words, the riches of the glory of his inheritance is in the saints. Beloved, what that means is we are his inheritance. Peter puts it this way. He says in 1 Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Beloved, Peter is proclaiming the same thing as Paul. 
If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are chosen by God. You have been made a part of the family of God. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. And you are a people for God's own possession. You are His inheritance. I think we can have a subtle what's-in-it-for-me attitude so the thought that we receive an inheritance resonates with us. Beloved, don't put a limit on God. We have been made an inheritance, a people for God's own possession. And according to Peter, this has happened so that we would proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of the darkness into the marvelous light. Beloved, it's all about Him. It's not about us. Now, I don't want to minimize, though, the idea of what we will receive. We are His possession. We have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. That's what Paul says in verse 3. He has lavished, lavished His grace upon us. He has shown us mercy. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 2.10, For you were once not a people, but you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He has made us to be sons with every right given to the firstborn son. What more do we want? John writes in John 1, But as many as received them to him, to them that is, that he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of, not of the blood, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. He picks up on this thought in 1 John 3, 3, 1. He says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know them. Beloved, now we are the children of God. Beloved, because... I want you to get this. This comes back to that inheritance idea. Because we are adopted as children of God, we have been given all that He has. Everything that He has. In other words, all that He has. And by the way, He has it all. There's nothing that He does not own. He has it all. All that He has, He wants to share with His redeemed and adopted children. First Corinthians 3.21, Paul writes, So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ. Get it? You belong to Christ. Because you're in Him, you have all things. It goes both ways, right? And Christ belongs to God. Marshall Siegel exclaims, he says, that promise is so spectacular spectacular that it's almost impossible to quantify or estimate what it could even mean. One day we will own it all. And yet the greatest treasure we will inherit is not anything God can give us, but God Himself. He's the most valuable, most satisfying, most fulfilling reality there is. And in Christ we are His and He is ours. Beloved, in the future, God will bring all of this 
to fruition. It's an unfailing promise. Listen to the Apostle John in Revelation 21. He says this, And I saw a holy, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be what? They shall be what? His people. And God Himself will be among them. This is His inheritance that we enjoy. Beloved, you should pray that the brethren would always recognize the unblemished hope of His calling. And you should also pray that the brethren would realize the unfailing riches of His inheritance. Look at the third astounding reality we should pray for. That the brethren would recollect the unmatched greatness of His power. Look at the text in verse 19. Paul writes, And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? You see, Paul wanted the Ephesian church to understand the greatness of the power of God, which will bring his plan to fruition. The, the, word, the Greek word translated power is where we get the word for dynamite or dynamo. But that word, this word doesn't necessarily portray an instantaneous or explosive power. It has the idea, though, of a, the power and ability and capability of acting, meaning that it, it, it has the idea of bringing something to be. In other words, this is that it's God's power to do what He plans to do. He has the power to put His plan into place beforehand and to bring it to full fruition. Now in this phrase that in verse 19, Paul literally, it's, it's hard to see in the English, but he literally stacks adjectives to describe the greatness of God's power. In other words, words alone can't describe the surpassing greatness of God's power. But that doesn't stop God or Paul from trying. Most of you have heard the song called Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I got that out. The Mary Poppins. <clears throat> According to Wikipedia, the Oxford English Dictionary first records this word in a column by Heaven Her or Helen Herman in the Syracuse University Daily Orange dated March 10, 1931. In that column, Herman states that the word implies all that is grand, great, glorious, splendid, superb, wonderful. Again, according to Wikipedia, the Oxford English Dictionary defines the word as a nonsense word originally used especially by children and typically expressing excited approbation, fantastic, fabulous. Now, that word did not exist when Paul was writing this letter. It didn't exist. But what he says about God's power has a similar, similar idea, except there's nothing nonsensical about Paul. Nothing's nonsensical about his statement. The word translated surpassing in the NAS has been translated immeasurable in the ESV and exceeding in the New King James Version. The word means to attain to a, a degree... I want you to get this. Let me slow down for a second. <clears throat> It means to attain to a degree that extraordinarily exceeds a point on a scale of extent. In other words, if you describe what it means to be great, then God extraordinarily exceeds your definition of greatness. Did you get that? So if you say this is what's great, 
No matter what you say is great, no matter how great that is, God exceedingly exceeds that. The greatness of His power far exceeds anything we could ever describe with mere words. I remember when I was young, my mother would ask me how much I love her. And of course, it became a battle of who could love the other more. She would say, I love you this, do you love me this much? And I would say, no, I love you more than that. And she'd say, do you love me this much? And I'd say, no, I, I love you more than that. And, and she would go on and on, do you love me this much? And I said, no, I love you more than that, Mom. Wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be able to describe the extent of our love for one another. Just this past week, some of you are reading through the Bible plan, the, the Bible plan that we are going through as a church. You read Job in, your reading, in those reading plans. Job, in Job 38, God says, speaks of the, His greatness. He says this in Job 38, 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On, on what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who are you to speak back to God? Who are you to question the greatness of God? Beloved, this is the surpassing greatness of the power of God, which He has demonstrated toward those who believe. In Ephesians 3.20, Paul further defines what he means here. He says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. You see, beloved, this is the very power which raised Christ from the dead, and it is at work in every believer. Paul wants the Ephesians to be aware of this very power and to use it in their life. This is the same power which made you alive in Christ, and it's the same power that seated you in the heavenly places in Him. And it's amazing that this statement comes in the context of Paul's prayer for the believers at Ephesus. He's speaking of God's power in his prayer. Listen to E.M. Bounds. He says this. He says, Prayer honors God, acknowledges His being, exalts His power, adores His providence, and secures His aid. End quote. Beloved, my prayer is that you would understand the power of God working within us and that you would live according to that power. I pray that when you're going through great difficulty, that you would lean upon Him and His power. I pray that you would find yourself, that in times of weakness, that you would lean on Him. Dwight Moody puts it this way, when a man has no strength, when a man has no strength, if he leans on God, he becomes powerful. End quote. I pray that as you live the Christian life, you would always recollect the greatness of His power. Now as we conclude, let me address those who do not know God. Some of you here don't know Him. You have, if you don't know Him, you have no hope. Because you have no access to the hope of His calling. Your riches, whatever they may may be, will always fail. You have no access to the power of God in Christ Jesus. All these things can be yours if you repent and turn to Christ. If you trust 
in the work of Christ on the cross, if you trust and believe that He died for your sins, it can all be yours in Him. But you have no access to it. Listen to the words of, of George Whitfield speaking to, speaking to those who need to turn to Christ. He says this, And now let me address all of you, high and low, rich and poor, one with another, to accept of mercy and grace while it is offered to you. Now is, the accept, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And will you not accept it? Now it is offered unto you. End quote. Beloved, today is the day of salvation. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're sitting here and you don't know Him, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day, time to come to Him. Don't let another second go by. You can't, you're not assured of your life any, any, any more in the future. You're not, a, you're, you're not assured of anything. I had that conversation with my son the other day. And right after that conversation, a friend of his died. You're not assured of your of any future you could wake up the next second you could wake up in the presence of God if you don't know him if you don't know him you have no hope in this world your riches will fail and you have no access to his power if you know him you know him i pray that you would recognize the hope that you have in him i pray that you would realize the unfailing riches that we have in his inheritance and i pray that you would constantly bring to mind constantly recollect the greatness of his power let us pray heavenly father we thank you again I pray, thanking you for your word. Thanking you that we can, in your word, in you, we can have true hope. We can have true riches. And we can, we have access to your power. Lord, I thank you and praise you for those who know you. I pray that they would grow in your word. They grow in their walk that you would give them great confidence in you. Not confidence in the flesh, confidence in you. I pray, my Lord, that those who don't know you today, that you would convict them of their sin, that you would call them to yourself. I pray for the Spirit of God to move, that there would be great revival, that those who don't know you would come to know you, and we would see the people who are dead, and their sins and trespasses, that you would make them alive in Christ, and that you would seat them in the heavenly places with you in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.